about Jesus, who he truly is, will govern the way we live our lives, how we live out our faith, whether we live, you know, with continued sort of doubts and fears and anxieties, or whether we live with hope and quiet confidence and conviction. Who is Jesus? This question dominates these early chapters in Mark that we're taking a look at. And Mark tells us that when Jesus walks onto the stage of history, again and again, he demonstrates his lordship over every power known to man. And last week, we saw him as lord over nature and human nature. Do you remember? Over the storm and over the man possessed. And this week, we'll see him as lord over sickness and death. Two of the biggest things that we will all face at some time or another, sickness and death. Two things that will probably have the greatest impact on our faith and our response to Jesus. And Jesus teaches us about these things, not just uh, with words, but through his actions. He demonstrates them through encounters. Encounters with ordinary people as he moves around Galilee, in ordinary situations that he again and again transforms into extraordinary, often miraculous events. Encounters with Jesus that reveal unmistakably who he truly is and why we can trust him. And here in the second half of chapter 5, we have what's called a Markan sandwich, uh, a method Mark uses a number of times in his gospel where he weaves two stories together to both uh, complement, with an E, complement each other and to shed light on each other. So let's take a look at them. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 21? I think that's on page 2007. 1007, there we go. So Mark chapter 5, let's start reading at verse 21, and I'll just read part of the story. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, "'My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live.' So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Let's stop there for a moment. Let's take a look at the two main characters in this story, Jairus and this unnamed woman, polar opposites of the religious, social, and economic spectrum. Jairus, with all the advantages of wealth and position, a pillar of society, a highly respected leader. You know, you didn't become one of the rulers of the local synagogue without having a few credentials to your name. A man in a predominantly male society, a man with a name, Jairus, as opposed to this woman with no name, no status, no resources. 
All her money, we're told, had been taken by her doctors, who had offered much and delivered little. In fact, so little that her health had actually deteriorated rather than improved. I don't know if you saw the way Mark describes uh, her condition. Rather ironic. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. A woman who shouldn't have even been out on the streets with other people as she was ceremonially unclean because of her bleeding. A woman who would have been ostracized by society and felt continuous shame and guilt because of her condition. But there the contrasts end and the similarities begin. Both came to Jesus as a last resort. They seek him out because they're desperate. They've tried everything. They've been everywhere. There's nowhere else to go. And they would have heard of his reputation as a healer. And they would now be risking everything as they approach him. Jairus risking his reputation, you know, would he lose his position when the other rulers of the synagogue heard that he'd sought out this maverick preacher? And not only that, he'd fallen prostrate at his feet, begging him to come with them. Losing all his dignity and pride and prejudice, he just falls at Jesus' feet in front of this great big crowd. You know, this isn't a select private audience with the teacher. This is out on the street for everyone to see. He's right at the end of himself. His little girl is dying, and he can think of nothing else but who can save her. Could it be Jesus? You know, this, this, could it be this unknown, unpredictable, untested traveling preacher? He'd heard enough to think that, well, maybe, just maybe it could, risking his reputation. And the woman risking discovery. She shouldn't have been there, out there in this crowd of people. They would have been horrified if they'd realized she, an unclean woman, was there among them. It could, could have even touched them. She was risking a stoning if they found out. But she, too, was at the end of herself. She tried everything, and life looked completely hopeless. Without healing, she would be left destitute and despised. And so both of them risk everything to seek Jesus out. They come with bare, raw faith. They seek him out with desperation, uh, with humility, with honesty, and with perseverance. And that's a model, isn't it? It's a model for us all. And the crises in our own lives, they, they can do that to us. They bring us to a raw place of it's all or nothing. And that's not always a bad thing. You know, it pushes all the periphery stuff of life out the way with the one focus of finding the truth, finding the answer finding Jesus. And that's where these two very different people find themselves. Is Jesus the Lord over sickness and death? Does he have the answers? Can he be trusted? And so they seek Jesus out. Jairus, first of all, as he falls at Jesus' feet, you know, he's beyond caring what others think now. His little girl is dying. And the words literally mean she's on the point of death. You know, it, it's all so tragic, so untimely, so premature and so urgent. And Jesus, we're told, responds straight away and goes with him, verse 24. And the large crowd follow him, pushing and jostling around him. And then suddenly, suddenly Jesus stops. He stops and turns around and asks the most bizarre question. Who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And you can imagine the people looking at each other, accusing me. Was it you? You know, was it you who's upset the preacher? And you can imagine also, Jairus, you must have looked at Jesus and thought, no, no, you, you can't stop now. My little girl is dying. We've got to get there. And the disciples who looked at him and said, you cannot be serious. 
you know, just look, just look at the number of people crushed up against you. And you ask, who's touched me? But Jesus knew, he knew that power had gone out of him, verse 30, and he couldn't ignore it. He knew this was an important moment and he wouldn't move. He just kept looking and looking. Do you see verse 32? He kept looking until finally a woman emerges out from the crowd just trembling with fear and she admits it was her. Now what will happen to her now, she thinks? What on earth has she done? She knows she's been healed. You know, she knows something extraordinary has just happened in her body. But all she'd wanted to do was just come up behind him and simply touch the end of his cloak and then slip back into the crowd. And now she's faced with this awful exposure and probably punishment for daring to do such a thing in her condition. She was banking on anonymity, slipping away unnoticed. But Jesus knows that if she walks away now, she's never going to be truly free. He knows that relationship is as important to her as healing. And it's Jesus' look, his searching her out in the crowd that sets things in motion, that paves the way for a conversation in which faith is shown to be something much more than merely trust in the miracle worker. It's relationship. A relationship in which she can dare to be totally honest. And so she takes this incredibly brave step of telling him the whole truth, we're told, verse 33. The whole truth about herself. It's interesting that Brené Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, says, shame derives its power from being unspeakable. Shame derives its power from being unspeakable. In other words, it makes us want to hide. It makes us afraid of showing others who we really are. But all this woman's fears are shown to be totally unfounded. As Jesus says those beautiful healing words over her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Daughter, here is the great teacher addressing her in the most intimate of terms, my little one, inviting her into a close personal relationship. And all the crowds listening and watching, and they've been pushing and shoving to get close to him, but she's the one, she's the only one who Jesus picks out from among them all. He recognized her faith, and it may, not just, it may just have been a, a mustard seed of faith, but it was the seed of faith, and he honors her for it. Jesus sees it. He sees it in this woman, and he sees it here. He sees it, he sees us in the crowd, even here in the crowd this morning. He sees our secret longings. He sees and hears our tentative prayers, those persistent prayers. And we wonder if he notices us. We wonder if we're significant. But this woman is significant. This unclean, unknown woman is significant. And Jesus pronounces her completely whole, clean, saved. And that word peace, like the word shalom, means wholeness, the completeness that only comes from a right relationship with God. And this is what faith looks like. It's brave and it's humble and it's honest and it's persevering. And all that while, all the while, Jairus is waiting. And you can just imagine his anxiety building, growing, as he sees the time, those vital minutes ticking away. His daughter is dying. There's no time to lose. But here is Jesus stopping to talk to some random woman in the crowd, wasting precious time. Does Jesus care? Does he realize the urgency? Has he forgotten him? 
I mean, the frustration and even maybe anger he must have been feeling at that moment. And then worst of all comes the awful news. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And the last vestiges of hope just drain out from him. It's all too late. This woman has been healed while his little girl has died. How could Jesus let this happen? And it's the question that if we're honest, surrounds so much of our own suffering, even today. Why them and not me? Why them and not my loved one? Why is one person healed and another not? Why is suffering so seemingly indiscriminate? Why do the good suffer while the bad get off scot-free? Why bother with Jesus anymore when he doesn't seem to answer my prayers? The frustration, the, the anger, yes, the agony of unanswered prayer. We've probably all experienced it to one degree or another. The delay, the disappointment, just as Jairus experienced it. Why bother with the teacher anymore? Why bother Jesus anymore with our prayers, our pleas? We've probably all got to that point at one time or another. But Jesus ignores all their negative talk. And he simply says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. That's Jesus' answer to all our questions. He understands what suffering does to us. It makes us afraid. It makes us doubt. In the face of sickness and death, our faith is tested, often to the limits. When we're deeply shaken, when you know, nothing seems to make sense anymore, we will experience fear in the midst of faith. The two emotions will get all mixed up together. That's what we heard last week too, isn't it? But sooner or later, one or other will come to the surface we'll, and push the other out. And Jesus is telling us, choose faith. Don't be afraid, just believe. And we know in a way there's no just about it. You know, This is often the hardest choice we'll ever make. But one of the questions that comes out of this passage is will we allow our pain or our sickness or our disappointments to keep us away from Jesus? Or will we, like this woman, like Jairus, allow our suffering to lead us to Jesus? Will we follow him? And this is a moment of real tension in the story, when faith faces fear. And what does Jesus do? Let's read on, verse 37. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter and James and John and the brother, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Telithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus finally arrives at Jairus' house. And there's a scene of absolute bedlam with people just weeping and wailing all over the place. And now, of course, the public display of mourning in that culture was totally normal. Apparently, even the poorest in Israel should, not, should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman, woman for, every, uh, de for each death of a loved one. But in this story, the contrast is stark between those who are consumed by the anguish of death 
and the quiet, confident assurance of Jesus' words. The child is not dead. He's asleep. She's asleep. And what do the mourners do? They break into laughter, which may say something about the genuineness of their wailing. They break into laughter. And I don't know if you realize, but this is the only reference to laughing in the whole of the New Testament. And it's not the laughter of joy or humor. It's the laughter of ridicule and scorn. They're laughing at Jesus. But their laughter soon turns to utter amazement. Jesus talks of death as a sleep. Now, why is that? Is the little girl only in a coma to be woken up, resuscitated? No. Jesus talks, talked about death as a sleep because if someone is asleep, they can be woken up, either back to this life or to the next. And do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus back to life? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Lazarus, like this little girl, was going to experience being raised to new life twice, once in this life and once in the next. And Jesus says something so moving to this little girl that we have it in the original. No one ever seemed to want to translate it from the Aramaic. Telithakum, literally, my little darling, my little darling, get up. And do you notice, he, he addresses her, this little girl, in almost exactly the same way as he addressed the woman back on the streets. This little girl had been alive the same number of years as the woman had been suffering from her bleeding, 12 years, 12 long years as far as this woman was concerned. That's what suffering feels like. 12 short years as far as the little girl was concerned, a life hardly begun. My little darling, get up. And immediately death yields up its victim. And just as the woman's healing was a glimpse of salvation, of the full healing to come, this little girl's rising is a glimpse of the great resurrection to come. Jesus raises a little girl from death just as though he were waking her up from a deep sleep. You see, we're in the presence of the Lord of life and death. And here in this passage, we see amazingly that Jesus confronts death as its master. To him, death is but sleep. He has power over it. Death, you know, the great taboo, the final frontier, the place that still fills us with dread and uncertainty, the place that holds still so many unanswered questions, the place that brings everything we've worked for to a crashing, grinding halt and seems to mock our whole life, all that we strive for, all our achievements. The place that severs relationship with loved ones, people we've invested so much in, people that reflect so much of who we are. Death sweeps it all away. But Jesus proves he is the Lord of life and death. He, death. he proves he can handle death, not just by raising a little girl from the dead, but by defeating death himself, by coming back from the dead. And, you know, if you still need convincing of that fact, of the proof of Jesus' death and resurrection, I would just recommend you to read a book, a book like Josh McDowell's Case Against Christ. It's too important. Read it. Read it and find out for yourself. Jesus' death and resurrection says to us, you can trust me. We can trust him. And this is so important because at the moment, we all live in this messy place of the now and not yet of the kingdom. We're living in a place of tension where we don't always see healings and we do see death. 
We're living in what is sometimes called, I don't know if you've heard of this expression, sometimes called living between the trees. After the Genesis, Genesis tree and before the Revelation tree. These two trees represent sort of bookmark of human history, bookends of human history. The story has a beginning in the Garden of Eden where the tree of life, do you remember, represents God's full and wonderful provision for mankind. The story has a middle through the fall where the garden has somehow been lost, become lost to us, and so we experience death and sickness. And the story has an ending in the last book of the Bible where in Revelation the tree of life makes a return appearance. And this tree will be at the climax of our story when all things will be restored. But right now, right now we're living in between the trees, where we're experiencing a delay between the now and the not yet. And it's often an uncomfortable and a distressing place to be when we see sickness and death and know that we have a Savior who wants to and will deliver us from all these things. But it teaches us to trust. And this event, this raising of this little girl from the dead is like a taster of that great resurrection. Not just raising to physical life, of the raising to physical life of one single individual, but the raising to everlasting life to all those who put their trust in him. Jesus pioneered his way through death. And he's saying to each one of us, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just follow me. Because only Jesus can offer life beyond death. Only Jesus enables us to look death in the face and have quiet confidence because he's given us a way to look through death to life beyond with him if we trust in his lordship. So will we trust in the rule of Jesus, the Lord of life and death, the Lord over sickness and death? Let's stand, shall we?